Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. folks for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Lost in Space artist Mr. Ron Gross. Ron is an incredibly talented and prolific graphic artist who's skilled in both traditional and digital rendering techniques. Many of his beautiful creations employ a distinctive hybrid production methodology that he personally developed. Ron's Lost in Space related works include assorted box art illustrations for both Polar Lights and Mobius Models model kits dating back to 1998. As a scale model prototyping artisan, Ron Scratch built his own 170th scale Jupiter 2 model that eventually became the design basis for the classic kit marketed by Polar Lights in 1998, thus filling the void for this decades-long awaited product. Ron has shared his novel scratch building techniques with a wider audience, writing multiple articles for publications such as Scale Modeler, Fine Scale Modeler, and Sci-Fi and Fantasy Modeler. In association with Kevin Burns of Synthesis Entertainment, Ron also designed the official 45th and 50th Lost in Space Anniversary logos. Fans of the show are most familiar with his stunning, officially licensed calendars and poster art based on the original Irwin Allen television properties. Before we speak with him, a little background information on Mr. Gross. Ron grew up in Aurora, Illinois, and resides in the greater Chicago area to this day. Although his creative interests and talents were evident from an early age, it's only after he retired from his nearly 30-year distinguished career as a sales executive for the Tandy Corporation that he's been able to devote himself full-time to his art. As a result of Ron's lifelong affection for Lost in Space and his later partnership with Kevin Burns, he's acquainted with many exclusive behind-the-scenes details about the series. In addition, he's had the opportunity to meet and get to know several of the original cast and creators of Lost in Space. In fact, for many years, he maintained a close personal friendship and correspondence with the late, great Jonathan Harris. I know you will enjoy this compelling and informative interview with talented Lost in Space graphic artist and enthusiast, Mr. Ron Gross. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Mr. Ron Gross, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast celebrating Erwin Allen's original Lost in Space. 
Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Lane. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh, yeah. Well, you are so well known in the fan community for your beautiful and visually stunning Lost in Space inspired artwork. You produce and sell those in poster form as well as these really spectacular wall calendars. And I was familiar with them before because I had seen your website, uh, OuterPortals.com. And I also recently had the pleasure of meeting you in person at the June 2018 Wonderfest convention in Louisville, which was great. I really, I really enjoyed getting to see you. In that's a that's a great show, Lane. I mean, that show is not the biggest one out there, but I'll tell you, I've been going there since the late '90s, and uh, that's my show of choice. So I just put it that way. Oh yeah, it was great, and I I have not been to too many of those kinds of events, but I really enjoyed it. And of course, the B9 guys were there, but it was just it was just a lot of fun. And especially, I had the opportunity to snag a couple of your new 2019 calendars before they're all sold out. And I have to tell our listeners that they're so interesting and as great as the works that you do appear on your website, seeing them in person is really something else entirely. And Oh, thank you. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're, they're really beautiful. And we're going to talk in detail about your art, but I want to start out where I do with all my guests, and that's at the beginning. So I'm going to ask you, how did you first experience Lost in Space, and could you talk a little bit about what the show represents to you? Well, that's pretty easy, I guess, because I go back to the beginning. I mean, uh, I was always one of these kids growing up who had passions for different things, usually what would be considered non-traditional things, like I was a big dinosaur kid, all right? Mm. One of those guys. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we got into the uh, early to mid-60s, and the space program started heating up, and I saw all these very compelling shows with Walter Cronkite calling the space shots, and mm. my interest started to shift to space at that point. And then all of a sudden, in the summer of 1965, we get this promo commercial for this new show coming on, and I almost had a heart attack. Mm. <laughs> you can about imagine. You know, here I'm 11 years old at the time, and uh, by the way, uh, if you wanted to ask which character I identified most with on the show, it would probably be Bill, because we're exactly the same age. Oh. I went to be out there with him fighting those giants. I wanted to be his lost his space brother, you know, but uh, <laughs> be, be that as it may. Uh, Me too. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Right. I remember very distinctly watching programs at that time just to wait for that commercial. Oh, cool. I mean, that it was just so cool, you know. And little did we know, of course, that it was all based on the unaired pilot, and there were scenes in there that we never saw on the show, which I'm sure is a subject we'll get into a little bit later, because I tried to write that wrong mm. <laughs> with some of my artwork. But uh, that's basically how it all got started. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And it's a very familiar story to me. I, I hear similar things. I'm a little bit younger than you, and so I have just vague memories of the show when it was in broadcast, probably just from the third season. But I definitely identified strongly with Will Robinson when I got hooked on it in the syndication phase. So that's very cool. Now, let me ask you this. How early did you realize that you had an artistic talent? Well, that goes back even further. You know, I'll I'll tell you a story here that uh, I have this incredible long-term memory, okay? I mean, I can't remember where I, put, where I put my keys down five minutes ago, but I can remember details of events when I was three, mm. you know? So it really goes back that far. Uh, I remember when my parents bought something for me when I was that young, maybe three or four, a little thing called a magic slate. It's like a little tablet, and okay. there's a plastic film on it and, and a pressure-sensitive back and a pointed stick. Like a stylus, right? Yeah, a stylus, yeah. yeah. You draw on this thing, and then you, you pull it up, and then it erases the image. You can start over again. So uh, I was drawn at that point. I don't know exactly why this is, but my interest was in uh, horses and carousels. And if you look at my website today, guess what the, what the image is? <laughs> it's a mm. carousel. Yeah. And maybe that's why I have such an affinity for the Jupiter, too, because if you think about it, the upper hole kind of looks like carousel, you know? Yeah. 
So anyway, I would draw these little horses and merry-go-rounds and that sort of thing and got to the point where if I came up with one that I liked, I didn't want to erase it. So they had to go out and buy me another magic slate. So this happened two or three times. And my dad finally said, you know, just buy this kid a pad of paper for crying out loud. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to keep doing this. Right. So and my daddy accidentally erased one one time that I didn't want to see go away, and I had a fit. So that's where my drawing comes from. I mean, it's that early of an age. Yes, yeah. And so drawing was really kind of the thing you started getting into. And then I, I have looked at some of your Facebook posts. It looks to me like early on you also started to combine your love of Lost in Space with your creativity, because you had some drawings there from your youth that had Lost in Space themes, right? Yes, I have started posting some of those, but I have to be honest with you, the ones I'm posting are from age 12 and up. I haven't posted any of the real early ones because they are some of those are god-awful, like, I have to be <laughs> honest with you. But there's something that happens when you get to be 12 or 13, the brain kind of kicks in, you start doing things on a more adult or young adult level, and you just think and do things differently, you know. So that happened with me almost overnight. But those real early drawings I did are, uh, leave a little bit to be desired. Maybe someday I'll get the nerve to put those out. I don't know. I'm not quite sure yet. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I don't have your talent no, far from it, but I kind of did the same thing when I was a kid. I, I always like to draw. And I'm grateful that my mom kept some of those things uh, along with like a baby book or something like that. But I don't have a lot of that stuff. Did you keep most of your drawings that you did? Every one of them. Every single one of them, Lane. I've got them all. That's awesome. You know, and don't get me wrong. I'm not a pack rate or anything, but when something's that important to me, I generally hold on to it. I've got all the paintings I did in college. I mean, uh, I never sold a single one. I get sentimental about this stuff. That's beautiful. Some of these old kid drawings are not in the best of shape anymore. You can see the tears in the papers with some of the stuff I post, but that's all part of the uh, you know the reveal at this point. It's, it's that old, you know, that sort of thing. Well, I wish I had been smart enough to, to keep all that stuff. My mom was thankfully <laughs> smart enough to say, you might want this someday, so she put aside some of those things. But when I look back on the few things that I do have, it kind of is like looking at a diary or, you know, it's kind of looking like old photographs. I don't think people keep photographs and albums anymore, but these are special because they're something you actually create. Created, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I did scan a bunch of those several years ago, and I've got them on my computer uh, just to make sure if anything, anything did happen, I'd always have them, you know, but I do have the physical copies, too. That's beautiful. So you mentioned you did start doing drawing in college. Do you have any formal training in painting or graphic design? Is that your educational background? Well, yes and no. That's kind of an interesting story, Lane. Uh, actually, I I did graduate from an outfit called Art Instruction Schools in Minneapolis. It was a very highly regarded correspondence school back in those days. It was in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, But as far as college was concerned, I took a bunch of art elective courses because I I grew to realize that uh, an art education through the mail is not sufficient. You've got to have interaction with your peers. That's really what it's all about, you know, so. Sure. But technically, and I'll tell you something that I, I never mentioned to you before, even personally, I was not an art major. I was a math major. Oh, serious? I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you can you can see it in my work. This uh, constant left brain versus right brain in mild conflict, if you will. <laughs> I mean, my style is very tight. I like to use geometric figures like spheres for the planets, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's all goes back to that that left brain nagging at me, saying everything has to be just right and has to include these elements and it has to be perfect, which uh, kind of limits the free flowing style at times. But that's you know that's basically what I'm all about. So. Wow, that is cool. Well, that's an interesting combination because you don't meet a lot of people that have the, you know, it's either one or the other, it seems like. It's yeah. either you're the creative 
type or you're the math, science, you know, STEM type, and you've kind of got both of those worlds. You're kind of an iconoclast there, uh, <laughs> Ron. That's interesting. I'll tell you a story. When I had an art class in college, I had a teacher who I, I got along with really well, but he wanted to try to free me up, loosen me up. Because he says, Ron, you can copy anything, you can render anything, but we need to get you more free-flowing. And uh, he gave me this challenge, and he said, you know, your grade is going to depend on this. And so okay. what I wound up doing was... I rendered it in my own usual tight style, and then I reversed engineered it to make it look more free-flowing, <laughs> just to satisfy the requirement. <laughs> you know, so the joke's on you, bud. Sorry, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I had a good relationship with this guy, and, and, and years later, I, I would go to his classes and help him critique the uh, students. He invited me to do that. That was a, it was a good deal, so. That is cool. Before your current life as a graphic artist, I understand you had a very long and distinguished career working for the Tandy Corporation uh, at the early stages of the personal computer revolution. Tell us a little bit about that. I thought that was interesting. Well... First of all, coming out of college with a math degree, all right, what do you do with that? I mean, uh, it shows discipline. Okay, that's all well and good, but what do you do with it? You wind up teaching school, you know, usually. So I thought to myself at one point, do I really want to do this and put up with high school kids? I finally came to my senses and I said, no way. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, this opportunity with Tandy came along, and uh, you know, back in those days in the 70s, it was a true entrepreneurial uh, opportunity. I mean, you ran the business; you basically ran every aspect of the business. It was—it's not like today with all companies where they want to control everything. You know, right? I had free reign. I would do my own personal signs for my store, for example. I had one district manager who sent me out for all the grand openings, and I'd uh, crank out 50 signs a day, that sort of thing. Wow! And those—those those were fun times, you know. But anyway. I joined uh, Tandy Corp with the attitude that, well, you know, I got this degree in my hip pocket. I'm young. If this doesn't work out, I'll just, you know, I'll do it for a year or so. And if it doesn't work out, we'll do something else. But sure. I wound up staying for almost three decades. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but what you're referencing, the one point I'd like to make is uh, with the computers, you know, the computer revolution started with a TRS-80 which yes. we carried. I sold one of those in the summer of 77 to a guy uh, who was also an airline pilot, by the way. I remember his name. I won't say it now, but uh, this is in the little town of Naperville, Illinois, which is not so little anymore. He told me sometime later that that thing had a string of zeros and a four for a serial number, which means it was the fourth one ever made. Oh, man. That is the early stages because that TRS-80 was right there at the forefront. I can remember yeah. those were like the, I mean, they blew people's minds when those things came out, didn't they? Pretty much. I mean, here we're talking about a machine with 4K of memory. <laughs> Four, K, I said K, okay? Yes, yes. Not meg, not gig, but, you know, kilobytes. And everybody thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know, with, yeah. a, with a cassette interface for loading programs. I mean, uh, I, was in, I was in on it from the beginning, and, and I loved every minute of it. That was really cool. So eventually you, you completed that career, and then you transitioned to what you're doing now. And I wanted to get you to tell me how did that come about? So, Because you've got a licensing agreement with Kevin Burns and Synthesis Entertainment to do your Lost in Space artwork. Tell, right. Take us from the time you retired, because I don't know if you started this before, though, actually, I should ask that. Well, in a way, I did start before I retired because I was involved in the uh, Polar Lights project back in the late 90s, and I did the box art for that kit. That actually was in between 97 and 98. Okay. And so uh, I was still, you know, I was working 50 to 60 hours a week for the company and still putting that stuff out. Uh, go figure, you know. You know, I had done th that original piece for Polar Lights, and then later on I got involved with Mobius Models and did some box art for them. And somewhere along the line, I actually sent Kevin a... Uh, a proposed piece that I thought could be a, a great third edition box art for the Polar Lights model. Sure. Uh, eventually, a variation of that was used for the Mobius kit, and he really liked that. We talked about it on the phone, and uh, so he was aware of me based on those 
circumstances. Okay, when we had the 45th anniversary of Lost in Space, uh, I wound up designing a logo for that event, which uh, strangely enough was never used because there were no products out that year. Okay. So when we got to the 50th anniversary a few years ago, I got this bright idea and I said, uh, let's try this again. So I sent him three samples, things I put together, and he loved one of them. And uh, that became the official logo for the 50th anniversary. Wow. And then I said to myself, well, that went pretty well. Maybe there's a chance to participate on yet another level. So I put together that composite piece with the cast members, my very first poster. And I sent that to him. Mm. And 10 minutes later, he called me back. (laughs) 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 All right. So apparently he liked that one. And uh, this is where we are. And, you know, I'm not sure that Kevin expected me to take it to this level. I think the original thought was I was going to do the uh, box art pieces I did for the model kit companies and pretty much call it a day. But I've decided to uh, take it to this level with new work. And uh, so far, so good. Yeah, we're all very blessed that you decided to take that road because uh, it's just tremendous. Now, you mentioned Kevin Burns, and I, yeah. I'm going to just mention I did get the chance to interview him, and I have tremendous respect for him because of all that he's done these years as, as I call him, the keeper of all things Irwin Allen. But I have to say, in the brief time that I got to interact with him, he struck me as a genuinely very nice guy. Kevin is a great guy. He really is. Uh, I've only met him personally once, and I doubt if he even remembers it because it was during the uh, 30th cast reunion thing in Boston. Mm. Uh, I've talked to him on the phone tons of times, and yeah, he is, he's the real deal. I mean, this guy, I call him the consummate professional. He's, he's one of these guys who can combine being an avid fan with being a professional and make it work. And that's what sets him apart. Oh, it really does. Uh, one of the things that he mentioned to me when we were talking is he said, I like to tell people that, you know, one of us got in. In other words, one of us fans got into the business. And that's why we have the Blu-rays. That's why we have the new Netflix and everything again. But you told me something different. What did you mention when I said that? I said the right one got in. Yeah. Because, you, you know, you have to have a knowledge of the industry and a desire to work in that industry. And then you have to have the passion and uh, the tenacity and the stubbornness to get things done. And I have... The latter two, that's not a problem, <laughs> but I uh, certainly don't have the other tools, but he's got it all. So uh, so someone like me wouldn't cut it, but get a guy like Kevin with all those uh, all those qualities put together, and then you got yourself a good situation. And you're right, there is no better guardian for the world of Irwin Allen than, than he is. It is true. That's great. So let's get a little bit of a deeper dive into your artwork. Um, okay. You know, what I found amazing about it, Ron, is there's such an incredible level of detail. And this is at least to my untrained eye. It didn't really pop until I viewed them in person. And that's a long way of me telling you folks out there, if if you don't have some of Ron's art, you really need to invest in these because they're beautiful. So I notice that you have a strong emphasis on first season stories. And I'm picking that up from the, the costumes and situations. Am I right there? To say the least, yeah, <laughs> is the best way I can put that. Do you want me to expand on that? Yes, yes. Tell me, tell me what all that's right. all about. Well, again, it goes back to the beginning, like we were discussing before with, the, with that commercial and uh, the early episodes, which had a profound effect on me. And then, as I'm sure you and, and Kurt are going to discuss when we continue your podcast, things changed with the series as time went on. And a lot of it had to do with the CBS mandates, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, be that as may, I didn't know that as a kid, so... Uh, Here's something that happened I think you'll find interesting. When I was 12, during the second season of Lost in Space, uh, I was really disappointed with what had happened and the turn the show had taken, right? Mm. I decided I was going to write the CBS and get them to 
cut the crap and fix this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, I asked my mother for a stamp. They were a nickel back then. She gave me a stamp, and I, I wrote, out, wrote this letter out and sent it off to uh, CBS in New York. And, and for some reason, Lane, I, you know, certain things just stick in your mind uh, for stupid reasons, and I, I still know that address, 51 West 52nd Street, New York, New York, 10019. <laughs> don't ask me why that stuck in my mind, but it did. All right. So I wrote this letter, and, and basically... What I said to these guys was, why are you effing up my show? Mm. Now, I didn't put it in quite those terms, of course, (laughs) you know, at age 12, but uh, I got a reply back. It was kind of a stock thing, you know, but but they were courteous enough to reply to me, and I think that was probably the policy back then. But I thought I was going to change the world. Little did I know that, you know, that's not the way it works. But when you're 12, anything is possible, right? Well, hey, you're a customer, right? You're the target demographic they're going for, so they ought to listen, right? Well, you you think so, but then it doesn't doesn't end there. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit, a few years. Lost in Space is now off the air and into syndication, and it didn't syndicate in Chicago right away. I think we waited a year or two before we saw it again. And the station that picked it up was WGN. Now, if you know anything about WGN TV in Chicago, it's an absolute class act. It was then, it is now. They had the best local programming, the best kid shows, the best kid personalities, the best sportscasters. They did everything right Mm. until they got their hands on Lost in Space. Okay, because (laughs) here's what happened. They put it on uh, Wednesday and Friday nights at 6.30. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they played the the first episode, Reluctant Stowaway. Then the second airing was the first episode of the second season. They had to have that color, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, that was so important. So we were left hanging there. We left Guy Williams floating out there in space, and that was the end of that for at least another year. So at this point, I'm thinking, I've, I haven't seen I haven't seen the repeats of these some of these shows since I was a kid, and I, I really wanted to see those black and white episodes again. And so there was like a deprived nature involved with all this, sure. you know, which I'm trying to compensate for now, apparently. But eventually we got around to showing those episodes but it was uh, it was a long time coming. Yeah, so you basically were you were left hanging there wanting more first season, right? And you yeah, were yeah. Yeah, and that stuck with you, that desire. By to... the way, I wrote I wrote to them, too. I was a little older by that time. I didn't have to ask my mother for a stamp. I could go out and buy my own. I think they were six or eight cents <laughs> then. You know, so I wrote the, wrote the WG, and that went nowhere, of yeah. course. But that was probably a little bit more intelligently put together because I was a little bit older at that point. But So, you know, I've always had a passion for these early episodes. I, I, I get so tired, Lane, of, of hearing people knock the show because they think it's so silly. That's what they think about it because that's all they've ever seen, you know. I mean, there's a, it's, there's a whole different realm of Lost in Space. And besides that, there's a, a whole different Lost in Space universe out there that was never explored. I mean, if, if we had gone the route of the unaired pilot and expanded the show from there without the extra characters, there was a whole uh, plan for that with, uh, you know, the aliens on the planet versus the giants with the Robinsons caught in the middle. And that's another uh, impetus for some of my artwork. I, I like to explore that, what I call alternate Lost in Space universe that really never was, but it's nice to speculate about it. Yeah. Well, it's a shame. I think that was done in a lot of markets with Lost in Space. I I think the color was the draw at the time because color was still relatively new. But, you know, they were really doing the viewers and the show a disservice because one of the things Kevin Burns mentions, he said, you have to think of Lost in Space as actually three different shows because there were such significant differences between each season in the approaches that they took, the way the stories were done, even the way they were transitioned from episode to episode. Actually, you can argue all of season one is just a continuing arc, a narrative. 
narrative. And season two is much more, there's bits and pieces of a narrative that are continued through, but obviously it's a little bit more campy. They're competing with Batman and, and so forth and so on. But there, So there's reasons why, but if you don't see the first season, you don't really know the full story of Lost in Space. That's true. And it's unfortunate because like I said, people who haven't seen that are missing a lot. You know, that, that, but that's the show that really impassioned me, the early episodes. Not to say that I didn't like some of the other, you know, there were quality episodes in the other two seasons too. You know, I can I can rattle them off right now, but uh, but I won't. But there are selected episodes that I may be basing some artwork on down the, down the road. But for the most part, my heart lies in those early episodes. You know, ironically enough, apparently that's the case with Kevin too, because he based the new series on, on those first few episodes. Yeah. You know, we want to get some justice here. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, I I like your creative choice. I think it I think it's great. And again, folks, you got to see these things. You got to get some. I did notice on your 2019 calendar that I have, you're doing art that's inspired from some of the other Irwin Allen shows. What inspired you to take that direction? And can we expect a little bit more of that in the future? Uh, well, I, I guess what inspired me is that I'm licensed to do it. Uh, and I did do a couple of box art pieces for Mobius for, the, for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which make natural posters. Um, and, but I don't have the passion for these shows that I did for Lost in Space. Not that I didn't like them. I watch them every week. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. But but Lost in Space was the one. So, you know, the answer to your question is yes. I'll be doing some more, but I'll always have the main emphasis on Lost in Space. I see. Yeah, well, they're great. I think they're beautiful. So kudos to you for that. So now we're going to get a, take a little bit of a peek behind the curtain as much as you're willing to reveal, Ron, because when I look at your artwork, as I said, it's so detailed and so many things just pop. Tell us what you're willing to about your process from concept to finished artwork. All right. Well, you know, not going to be a big secret for long because I'm planning to do an article for uh, Amazing Figure Modeler. I'm talking to Terry Webb about that. So all will be revealed there anyway. So let's just lay it out. <laughs> okay. okay. I'm not Beautiful. sure when that article is coming out, by the way. I haven't even, haven't even started that yet. You know, I have my roots in traditional rendering, oil painting, and I posted a lot of that stuff online. As you know, I posted one just a few weeks ago. Um, yes, but yes. For this stuff here, I'm using primarily, I'm using a what I call a hybrid methodology that involves a certain degree of physical rendering combined with digital tools and, and, and enhancements. And I've developed this. It's a unique process I've developed pretty much on my own. And uh, I'll give you a rundown of, of how one of them was put together, okay? Okay. Because people, I get this question all the time. You know, the first one I did with the cast ensemble, for example. I mean, obviously, that's based on well-known photos. Most okay. of them are black and white. Sure. Mine, mine's in color, you know. So the process involves this. I'll take the photo. Often it's my own screen grab, sometimes it isn't, and print it out very lightly so you can just barely see it on a certain kind of cardstock with a certain amount of tooth. It's a technical term involving papers, you know. Right. Um, the texture, is that? Yeah, the right? texture, exactly right. And then I'll take, I'll physically render over the top of the photo. Let me digress just for a second here. I, you know, at Wonderfest this year, did you happen to catch that uh, tribute to Chesley Bonestell? You know, I didn't get to go and do that. I, okay. I saw that it was going on, but I didn't know. So during the course of this presentation, it was revealed that he used to do the same thing. <laughs> oh. He used to render over for some of his architectural drawings. I mean, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me, right? Absolutely. Because I'm nowhere, nowhere near in, in his league. But so... Once we get the physical rendering done based on the photo, then it's scanned and it's worked into a digital composition. In that way, I can move things around. I mean, if you're working on a digital canvas, you can move things around. You can compose things. You can make adjustments that you just can't do as easily the quote, old-fashioned way. But the difference between what I do and what... Uh, a lot of the Photoshop artists do, and, and don't get me wrong, I have great respect for uh, the current techniques involving Photoshop uh, tools. 
I don't use just Photoshop, by the way. I have a variety of different software that I use. Sure. But the difference that uh, I think my stuff exhibits is that I always want to have that element of good old-fashioned physical rendering in there to some degree. I, I want, you know, that's my roots. You know, I want to set my stuff apart in that respect. Well, that's... I wanted to have that. I wanted to have that look. So that's basically the process. It's a lot of work. It's a ton of work. I mean, I, I almost treat this as a full-time job. It doesn't pay that way, but right. <laughs> but uh, it's a ton of work, and it's very gratifying, and it's, it's a very unique process that uh, I'm sure others will try now that I've put it out there, but, uh, but that's what it is. By the way, uh, I'll also say this. When it comes to the physical rendering, these are fairly small-scale renderings, right? And, yeah, I was going to uh, ask you what size dock you're putting that in. This regular old 85 by 11. And a, a good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Mark DeRay, who is a fantastic urban Ellen artist in his own right, uh, shared a secret with me uh, a few years ago where he said you can take a Prismacolor rendering and blend it with a solvent and make it look like paint. In other words, you can transform a dry medium into a wet medium, essentially. Mm. So that's the real secret, because then that's where the tooth of the paper comes in. It's got to have the right amount of tooth to accept that blending. And so the, the, uh, the fiber blending sticks then become an integral part of the process, and you wind up drawing with those as much as you, as much as you do with the pencils. Okay, so and this is all due to the fact that back in college, I would do these huge oil p- paintings, sometimes three by four feet. You know, it, it's messy, and it, it's just nothing. I, I, you know, I move beyond that, all right, at this, at this stage of the game. So I've kind of embraced the digital world to some degree, and yet I, st- I still want to retain an element of that good old-fashioned uh, physical rendering, which is which is where my roots come from. I'm blown away by that, Ron, because I, I'm I'm struggling for the words to describe it because your your works have the appearance of you know something that's done by hand, as you mentioned, but they also have this interesting photorealistic quality to them. Again, I don't. I don't think I've got the vocabulary to describe it. Again, you got to see these folks. You got to buy something to get the the point of this. It's just such an interesting combination. And now I kind of get what you're talking about. And the colors that you choose are, seem to be so important. I was going to ask you about that because uh, you know, first season is black and white, but oh, yeah. you've got colors. All the cast uniforms well, yeah. are in color. And how do you reference that? How how do you know what color to make certain things? You know, obviously we have the second season and the third season are in color, so you can go right. off. Yeah, but but some things don't appear in those episodes, and you you've got colors assigned to them. There are a number of quality eight and a half by by ten photos and other images you can grab off the internet that you know, photos that were taken during the course of the show that were actually in color that provide a good good resource for that. So uh, you know, and I look at by the way, I look at that. I look at Guy Williams' costume from the first season, and I and I think to myself, what a shame. I mean. <laughs> I mean, the guy looks like Superman in that thing with the red and blue, you know? It does, yeah. And he could, he could have almost played that role, uh, by the way, in my opinion. But, yeah, but, you know, I wanted to come up with something a little bit different. I mean, the way to honor those black and white shows, which was what my goal always was, was to do something a little bit above and beyond uh, with it. You know, there are a lot of guys online who do colorizations, and they're very good, and most of them are friends of mine. But I, I like to take it a step further and take it to the, the realm of a, more of a physical rendering. Uh, that's how a lot of this stuff is done. It's done in pieces and then put together digitally, and then I use a variety of different software, which I probably won't go into that, but uh, sure. trust me, it's not just, not just Photoshop. If anything, Photoshop gets the very end treatment with respect to the final tweaks of the unified whole. It has very little to do with the uh, actual process of uh, putting the piece together. It's amazing to me, and I, I can imagine it's a lot of work, so uh, hats off to you for everything you've done, because it, it's really been great to get to see those, and, and now I own some as well, so that's great. I 
been saying the word invest when I've talked about your stuff. People should invest in these because the, the prints that you do, uh, they're beautiful art, but they are limited editions, right? Is there a, a, a cap on the number of prints that you do? Well, you know, I put 500 on the, on the sheets just to have something to put on there, basically. But, <laughs> you know, one of them, that first one I did is getting pretty far up there now at, the, at this point. So uh, I'm not sure what we'll do with that when we, when we go over. But, but 500 is a good number to, to work with because uh, that'll last for a while. And, but, yeah, there will be a limited edition. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because eventually down the road, it's just like, you know, you could go back to the original Topps trading card sets. You know, those things, you know, I know they've been redone and everything else, but the original sets and everything, they're worth a lot more today than they were (laughs) when they were printed back in the 60s, you know, so. No, I'll tell you a little story about that, Lane. It's totally off off topic, but I, you know, I have all those trading cards and I was missing five cards. And so I'm working with Tandy, one of my stores in the Charlestown Mall in St. Charles, Illinois, back in the 90s, and they had a trading card show, right? Yes. And guess what? I was able to pick up those exact five missing cards. How uh, cool is that? The set is complete. Well, set is my, complete. <laughs> yeah. My, my buddy, Kurt, that does the podcast with me could talk to you a lot about cards. In fact, that's one of his businesses is he produces tra- trading cards. Monsterwax.com is his... Uh, his site and he he says there's nothing worse for a card collector than to be missing <laughs> something when you Well, I, to... I had the reprints at that point, but it's not the same, you know. No, yeah. You want those originals, so uh and I that was a big deal back in those days. So that was during the second season those came out. And that harkened back to the first season too and rem- reminded us of what we were missing. At least that was my opinion at the time, but Nevertheless. Yeah, sure did. So here's going to be a real tough question for you, Ron. I, maybe, maybe not. So of all the stuff that you've done so far, do you have a favorite piece? Um, you know, I, I guess well, the one I use for my personal wallpaper has an interesting history, and that's the one based on the, uh, the Aurora model kit. Because um, that was a challenge. I mean, Kevin said to me on the phone one time, why don't you try... Uh, Try doing this. Try coming up with a, a new piece based on the Aurora model kit. Well, you know, this guy named Mort Kunstler did the original box art, and he's one of my idols, him along mm. with James Bama. You know, those two guys, Bama and Kunstler, were the, the two artists that I really looked up to as a kid. In fact, I used to buy the model kits to get the artwork. <laughs> I mean, that was the big deal, you know, yes. back in those days. Um, so, I, you know, I, the first thing I, I thought of was, if you think I'm, I'm going to go up against this guy, you're nuts. Uh, there's no way. So then I thought about it, and I started to play with it. And you know, I'll, pre- I'll preface this by saying that you know, when you do a piece and there's already another piece out there that is so good like his was, the job becomes a lot easier. So to come up with, a, with this on my own would have been much more difficult. So, so I'm not out there to claim that uh, I've got something as good as he did. That's, you know, I've got some, I had an excellent resource to, to look back to. Sure. And that's that was the uh, the reason why this thing turned out the way it did. But you know, the reason why this one means a lot to me is because it's based on my own build of that kit, and that chariot is based on a photo of my scratch built chariot. It's not the uh, prop from the show. That's why it's a little bit different looking. I mean, that chariot of mine is only three inches long. You've probably seen pictures on uh, the internet with me holding it in my hand. That's yes. how small that thing is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that. It's based on that. So it was an opportunity for me to kind of marry everything I've done together in this one composition that, that Kevin personally asked for, and, and I think it turned out pretty good. And that's so. If I had to pick one, I think it would be that one. Another one would be the one called "The Caves Have Eyes," because here we here we get to explore what the show might have been like had uh, the course been different. Describe that one for our audience. Well, this one, this piece shows them peering out from a cave and looking at the chariot on the frozen ice. 
So the, the chariot part of it is right out of the fifth episode, The Hungry Sea. But The Hungry Sea was supposed to have ended with uh, these two aliens peering from behind a bush, like the, like the entire pilot did. And then, as you've discussed in previous episodes, that episode was never filmed. So you're talking about the aliens that we never got to see from the unaired pilot, the a- yeah. aliens from No Place to Hide, correct? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, yeah. here again, they were part of the promo commercial, and I felt like I got screwed. <laughs> 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 All right? I mean, where are those guys? Um, yeah. You know, I'm waiting and waiting, and uh, when Invaders from the Fifth Dimension came on, I thought that would be it. And by the way, I, I missed that episode on its first run, because uh, my parents had to go shopping that night. I recall that very distinctly. Mm. So I didn't see the Invaders from the Fifth Dimension until it was rerun, and then I realized that's not that episode. So the mystery then deepened. What's going on here? Of course, years later, we find out that this was planned for the show, but it never really materialized. And uh, so I'm trying to make it materialize in some of this artwork of mine. That's very cool. The Caves Have Eyes. That's beautiful. Yeah, that was a cool name, too. It's a great composition. And it's cool that we get to see more of those aliens. Of course, if you've got the Blu-rays, you can watch the unaired pilot. And I recommend everybody do that because it is cool. And you, you do get to kind of think what would Lost in Space have been like if it had continued on that path. And those aliens were kind of interesting, I thought, as well. Well, you know, I thought they could have explored that topic even with Smith and the Robot. I mean, they're always looking for storylines. There it is for crying out loud, you know? Right, uh, right. But for some reason, that they, they was it was just never explored. Um, and that was to be an ongoing thread, by the way. They were going to be an ongoing uh, storyline involving the conflict between the two indigenous races with the Robinsons caught in the middle, basically. And, and the reason why that sixth episode called uh, uh, Refuge of the Damned, I think it was, yeah? Yes, yes. Uh, why that was... You and I discussed this, how overly complicated we thought it both that it was with the extra characters. You know, my theory behind that was uh, there was going to be a, well, first of all, to backtrack, there was going to be a, a storyline involving a crash of another Earth ship decades earlier, and they were going to have these two nemesis, the indigenous aliens plus these other guys to worry about. If you think about it, if we didn't have Dr. Smith and the robot, they needed some kind of uh, ongoing conflict, and that probably would have provided it. Right. Right. You know, a second episode after No Place to Hide had it gone that way, you know, that might have gone in that direction with those guys now serving the role that Dr. Smith uh, eventually served. Well, let me ask you this, just uh, it's kind of a little nitnoity question, though. So were there color photographs of those original aliens that you used no. for your color palette? So how did you how'd you go with that issue? Well, <laughs> that's interesting. Um First thing I did was write to, to Bill uh, on Facebook. And I said, do you remember what the color of these costumes was? And he wrote back and said, I'm sorry, I don't. So, okay. Oh. Well, you know, and I, he was he's my age, so he was 11 at the time, and, you know, how would he be expected to? But then I got to thinking, all right, there's got to be some other uh, resource for this. So I got a hold of the uh, drawings that Paul Zestovich did of these aliens for pre-production, and he references a yellow-green color. Mm. That's what, you know, And there's no guarantee that's what it was, because they made changes in production all the time. But at least I had some kind of credible reference I could base it on at that point. I see. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So you really do the you do your due diligence on this stuff. You don't just pull a rabbit out of the hat when you're just No, no, it. no. No, I I I want this stuff to be as authentic as it can be. I want it I want people to be able to look at it and just kind of dive into another world basically, yeah. you know. That's the goal. Well, it sure it sure works, I got to tell you. I hope you're enjoying this great interview with artist, writer, and Lost in Space aficionado, Mr. Ron Gross, as much as I am. The thing I love about talking to Ron is he's not just an accomplished artist and authority on the subject of Lost in Space, he's also a fan. 
and that devotion really shines through when you listen to him. He's got more to share about his Lost in Space artwork, Erwin Allen, and much, much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with Lost in Space artist, Mr. Ron Gross. You mentioned your website, uh, OuterPortals.com, The Art of Ron Gross, and that's where visitors can go see your artwork and also order your posters and calendars. It's I have to say it's a really cool site, but something I learned on there that in addition to being a talented graphic artist, you're also a published author, and you have some links to several articles that you've written over the years about your scratch-building model techniques. Now, wow, lots of boys, including me, grew up building plastic models with the old the tester's glue and the little bottles of paint and stuff like that. Were you that that guy too growing up did you start oh, building models as a kid you think <laughs> <laughs> i mean i mean come on i mean when the wish upon a star aired and they showed that model uh that materialized from the wishing machine i just about had a heart attack you know mm. i wanted that model and then of course aurora plastics never never came out with that kit and I that was know. a huge mistake on their part I why why didn't they make a jupiter too <laughs> uh you know i covered that in my article uh, uh but you know one of the reasons was I think they thought it was a kind of a simplistic design. They didn't bother to take a good look at the hero miniature, which has some nice graceful curves and uh, interesting things going on, which is what my scratch build is based on. And by the way, before I get going any further with the modeling, let me just say this. You know, I get requests from people all the time to do build-ups, and that's behind me now. I had a vision impairment thing happen to me a few years ago that makes it very difficult for me to uh, work 3D. Mm. Um, if you want something built, I'm going to give a plug to my buddy Mark Myers here because he's hands down the best there is. Absolutely. I, and, I've, uh, I've heard that from others, so that's a, yeah, that's so, a fair uh, thing. Yeah, so I don't do that anymore, unfortunately. But, but you know, what, what that has done is, is caused me to go more to this uh, the 2D stuff, and I have no regrets about that, certainly. So. Yeah. Well, would it be fair to say that your modeling prowess is kind of what put you on the map before you started doing the, the graphic uh, artwork? Yeah, probably. I mean... Uh, because you built this, you mentioned it briefly, but talk about it. You built a scratch-built Jupiter II. That goes back all the way back to the early 80s, uh, when I saw an ad in Starlog magazine for this little 4-inch Jupiter II replica. Mm. And I ordered it, and eventually I got my hands on it. It was built by a guy named David Merriman, who was one of the best. Uh, he was uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the premier scratch builders around anywhere. David uh, was going to do a larger 10-inch version of the ship, which I helped him out with in terms of providing a lighting circuit for it. Okay. And then he lost interest in it, and uh, one thing led to another, and I'm off on my own. And he wished me the best, encouraged me to pick up the ball and keep going with it. This project was actually on again, off again for a long time, because when you scratch build, I mean, people don't realize what this entails. I mean, people today have it easy. I mean, you buy a kit, you got all this good aftermarket stuff. You know, we didn't have any of that. We had lunar models, and but, you know, that kit was off by quite a bit. Sure. Uh, and that's not a criticism necessarily because you've got to start somewhere. You know, God bless him. Uh, Mike Evans, who ran that company, did a great job. But it wasn't what I was looking for. Besides, I, my interest was in getting something more Aurora-like and that smaller size, you know. So, right. Uh, you're right. So um, as the story goes on, um, I became frustrated with the, uh, what would be required to build this thing. I did a dry run with the, uh, the chariot scratch built in 92, which – Turned out okay, but the Jupiter II was a whole different ballgame. We're talking patterns and molds and untried techniques in, in many cases. And, and I'm talking about starting from nothing, even the circuit boards. I mean, I, I had to design the circuit board. I had to hand etch the board. 
with a Radio Shack etching solution kit. That's where you draw the pattern on the copper clad board with a certain kind of ink, and then you eat it away in a container of acid, and the mm. rest of it is the, the circuit. And you mount all the components, and you hope it works. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so I, the first, I did that for David Merriman's model before he lost interest in this project. Eventually for my own project, of course. So, you know, scratch building is a whole different ballgame. So I became frustrated with this. And then I went to a um, convention in the early 90s where I met someone who was offering a build-up service. And uh, this guy basically convinced me to uh, set my project aside and contract with him. So, you know, at this point, I just wanted the model. That's all I care about, even though that would, be, that would have been a bigger solution. The work he did was tremendous. He was quite well-known, incredibly talented, so I, I went for it. Well, one thing led to another, and uh, a few years later, we're dealing with the bankruptcy, bankruptcy situation. I lost all that money. Mm. <laughs> yeah, not a, good, not a good deal at all. And let me, let me say this. Nobody set out to screw anybody. Sometimes circumstances dictate things, people fall on hard times, and we go on from there. But I'll tell you this, that event, the reason why I'm bringing this up, the only reason, is to say that that event is what got me fired up, because at that point, I was going to finish this model, and no power on earth was going to stop me. (laughs) That was the attitude I had, okay? If it hadn't been for that incident, none of this other stuff would ever have happened, Lane, because... uh, you know, that, at that point, I had no interest in becoming known for anything. I just wanted the model, you know. Because of that incident, it fired me up, and everything that's happened since is because of that. So it's an example of turning a lot of negative energy into something really positive, I think, you know. That's a great so, story. I mean, it's like yeah, you, had to, you had to overcome so many obstacles to get something right, that yeah. you had wanted. There were a lot of obstacles. So at this, yeah. point, at this point, I'm going back to the project, and I'm calling Merriman up a lot to get his tips on what to do. and couldn't decide if I wanted to do it in vacuum form or do a pattern and do rubber molds, which is the, what I eventually show is a lot more expensive that way, by the way, but I wanted to do it right. So uh, then they started talking about this uh, new Lost in Space film that was going to come out. And I figured, okay, here's a window of opportunity because uh, we're into the mid-90s at this point. You know, this film is going to be out in you know, 98 or so, and there will surely be tie-in merchandise. So there, there always is. So if I can get this thing done on time and uh, you know capture the attention of whatever company is going to have a license for this, I might be able to share this thing with the world. Yeah. And that's basically what happened. I mean, uh, I, I got that model done with, with all the lighting. The final result was done in the summer of uh, 77. I mean, 97. And the article was published that fall. It was a two-parter. Uh, Polarlights saw it. They liked it. They called me. And uh, here's something that will blow you away. Uh, in 1997, of course, was that was the, the year of the, the official launch date, October 16th, 1997. Right. I was home that day, took the day off, because Sci-Fi Channel had the, uh, the Lost in Space marathon going on, right? Mm. And on that very day, on launch day, I reached my verbal agreement with Polar Lights for consulting services and box art, if you can believe it. The same day? The same day. Oh, man, that's like October a sign, 16th, man. <laughs> you know, tell me that isn't just wild, you know. That is wild. That is, that's not a coincidence. That has, that's some amazing kismet there. That is yeah. beautiful. Yeah, so uh, then the model came out, of course, uh, the following uh, spring. Let me backtrack again. These thoughts keep popping into my head. We're talking about artwork. I'll just tie this in briefly. At that point... Um, with polar lights, with that box art, that was a that was a painting. And back in those days, you had to uh, do the painting, and that was fairly large. I think it was about 36 by 36. I think I'm, I could be wrong about that. Might be a little smaller, but anyway, it was pretty good size. You had to pack it up and send it off, and they had to photograph it, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a little long process. Um, Today, everything's done digitally, and that's why another reason why today you, you've got to have some degree of, of uh, digital proficiency because today clients want a file. That's all they care about, you know. Exactly. So, yeah. 
that's another reason why, you know, as much as my heart belongs to the old days and, and the old ways of doing things, you got to change a little bit now and then, and uh, which relates to this hybrid methodology I told you about to retain retain some aspect of what I used to do. But, uh, but the digital techniques are absolutely required today. And if you don't have them, if you're not able to do it, then chances are uh, you're going to have a hard time. So Well, I don't want to skip over this. And, and folks, go read the article about how Ron did the scratch build of the of the Jupiter two. It's really interesting. It's, it's very detailed. If you have any questions, I thought it was a great article. You're a good author as well, but your scratch built model basically directly led to us having a commercially available kit of the Jupiter two all these years. That's, that's how many years after the show went 30 years after the show ended before we got this. Yeah, how, that's how cool amazing. That? I mean, can I you mean, imagine what it what it's like, what it must be like for me to, you want that kid as a kid, and I could never have it, and then 30 years later to be responsible for it. I mean, it, it just doesn't get any better than that, you know. Oh, and even awesome. though the kid has issues, I'll you know, address that briefly. Uh, people say, well, it's not just like your prototype. Well, no, it's not. Um, I mean, Polar Lights was a young company at the time, playing Mantis was the parent company. They wanted to hit a price point. They made some decisions with tooling that resulted in some compromises. But I think another component in that was uh, they wanted this thing out to coincide with the movie release in the spring of 98. So, you know, here I'm delivering the box art to them in December of 97, and this the thing is on the market in April, you know. And so there was just no time. Right. So there are some issues with that kit. And so what we decided to do with that was uh, uh, got together with a good friend of mine, Steve Iverson, who runs this massive modeling site called uh, Cult TV Man. Yeah. We, what we would do is we put out uh, what I called then construction tips to enhance the model. And basically what I was doing was I was telling him how to you know, correct all the screw-ups, <laughs> yes. but, but uh, without saying it, of course, you know, but that's basically what, and don't get me wrong, I, uh, I, I have no regrets about the way that unfolded. I mean, I realize that you're dealing with a, with a business situation, compromises are going to happen, that's just the way it is. I was just thrilled to be involved at all, so, uh, and we made the best out of it in the most positive way possible at, at that point. Well, hey, we got a kit, you built the prototype, essentially, and we got yeah. a kit, and you know, and you got the, to do the box art for that, but that wasn't the last piece of box art you did, right? Oh, no, no. It's, after that, I got involved with uh, Frank Winsper and Mobius, great guy, by the way. He's in the process of leaving the company. That's that's regrettable, but uh, you know, Frank's a great guy. But uh, I did about six pieces for them over the years, and one of them was uh, for their Jupiter 2 kit, and it was basically a modified version of, of that one I'd shown to Kevin all those years earlier. So, uh yeah, and uh, again, those pieces for Mobius became the basis for my first few posters, but I didn't want to stop there. Like I said, I wanted to keep going. Man, now I know why you like that uh, Wonderfest convention so much. I'm going to oh, tease yeah. you a little bit, because I walked through the, the uh, vendor area. All I'm seeing left and right is Ron Gross uh, <laughs> box art, because they, they're selling all those kits in, in the hundreds, it looks like. So that must be a kick for you to walk through that area and see your work. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's Sometimes I have to pinch myself. I, I like this can't be real, you know. But uh, and, but anyway, yeah, it's 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 quite a high. It really is. That's beautiful, Ron. And I, I'm, well, I'm just so grateful to be able to participate on that level. I mean, uh, I started out as just another fan, just like Kevin is being very humble when he says one got in. I'm kind of a, that same mindset. I was nobody special. I just I was at the right place at the right time. I got fired up for the right reasons, and believe me, I really got fired up at that point. Uh, you know, one thing led to another, and this is where we are. 
that's nice that you mentioned being a fan because I wanted to shift gears anyway. So that's a good segue. You've been involved with the fan community for a long time and you're very well known. I'm new to this. I call myself a fan and of course I am. I've loved the show since I was a kid, but I've, I've not really been involved with the fan community until recently since we started doing this podcast. And now that I've had a chance to, you know, sort of rub elbows online and in person, uh, Wonderfest being the highlight of that, I'm just so grateful that I finally am part of that. I think that uh, I sense from you that you get a lot of satisfaction about being involved in this this fan scene. How, how early did you get involved in it? And tell me what it was uh, like. Well, you know, first of all, let me say, you know, referencing our last topic briefly, uh, I do enjoy being involved in it. One example is after the Polar Lights model came out, I mean, I've got, uh, I've got hundreds of emails and I, you know, over the period of years, and I, I tried to answer every one of them. You know, recently we had a situation where uh, I put up a thread uh, about my scratch build on my Facebook page. And here I thought this thing was all but forgotten. It's 20 years old, for crying out loud, right? Yes. And all of a sudden I've got this thing grows into like 200 comments, and, and uh, it's just, you know, huge. So apparently it's finally remembered, at least, and people still want to talk about it. But that kind of interaction, especially that particular event, gave me a chance to relive that experience I had 20 years ago when I was answering all these emails, I mean, every day. And it was very, very gratifying. But uh, in terms of when I actually got involved in fandom, I guess you'd point back to that incident I referred to before with uh, the ordering of that uh, little four-inch Jupiter II. Before that, I I really wasn't that involved. And uh, there were people who were. I mean, you had fanzines that came out in the 70s already, you know, Mm. but I wasn't involved in any any of that. I was just kind of in my own little world. But that opened it up for me, and uh, and we go on from there. I actually had a chance. Uh, I'll probably mention this briefly. You mentioned uh, the, the, the uh, scale modeling put me on the map. That it, it did. But there was a, an opportunity to, to become, uh, to be able to participate earlier than that, which didn't materialize. And I'll, I'll tell you about that just briefly. This was in... Uh, around 87, a friend of mine who was working with this uh, publishing company on the West Coast, they were the outfit that put out the uh, Files magazine spotlight on. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those those uh, little booklets. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and so this guy calls me up and he says, uh, I'd like to get you involved in this because he's working with these people. And, uh, and I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. So he had just done something called a, the Lost in Space Technical Manual. He wanted me to do a, another volume of that. So I sat there and I drew all the hardware, basically, in kind of a blueprint format. And they weren't particularly accurate because back in those days, you didn't have really good resource material, you know. Right. Uh, so we were just kind of shooting from the hip and feeling our way through the dark and hoping for the best. So, so that's why I don't like to show that stuff today, because today there is a wealth of information out there. And uh, that has relevance to that particular time frame. So I finished that whole thing and also did a piece of box art for yet another one of their books. And then I found out that, uh, that this guy who got me involved one decided to show the stuff to Irwin Allen, who was still alive at the time. Oh. And he waited <laughs> He waited for him in the parking lot uh, and showed him this book, this uh, technical val- manual volume, one that I had nothing to do with. Yeah. Well, Irwin Allen went crazy. All right, he just yes. went nuts. Uh, so obviously that was not acceptable. Back in those days, there was... Uh, kind of some ambiguity involved in, in what you could do with publishing and uh, the idea that you could ed- editorialize about something and you'd be okay. That's a, very much a gray area. And of course, I was young and naive and didn't know anything. But so I got involved with these people. And I found out that after Irwin Allen basically flipped out that the same outfit was being sued by Marvel Comics and that they were naming the writer and the designer in, in the lawsuit. 
So Jeez. I figured, here I am doing volume two, right? I don't think so. <laughs> right, right, right. So uh, I had to pull all that stuff away. And so that was back in 87. And it's a shame that it had to end that way. But there you go. I mean, lesson learned here. When a company winds up changing its name for uh, several different times, there's probably a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with these people. A little warning so, there. Uh, yep, it sure is. So just a little aside, a little, uh, you know, I did post that information with some samples on my Facebook page last fall, I think it was. If you want to scroll down, you'll probably find it. But that's a little piece of, of hidden lost in space history. Interesting. But eventually you did, like you said, after you ordered that, that original Jupiter 2, you did start getting into the fan community. And uh, I yep. guess it's opened up some, you've already mentioned quite a few of them, some unique opportunities over the years. Is there any anything in particular you'd like to mention? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is what a, you know, Everything that's happened with the box art and the, and the model kit participation, and uh, so I guess those would those would be the highlights. Uh, you know, again, I never dreamed it would ever come to anything like that, but uh, you know, things sometimes fall in place a certain way, and here we are. I hear you. But didn't you also get an opportunity over the years? Haven't you been able to meet some of the original cast members? Oh yeah, I think I've met them all, except for Guy Williams, of course. Uh, and in most cases, I don't think I I don't know them that well. I mean, but I did get to meet Jonathan on a little bit different level, and that's an interesting story if you want to hear it. Oh yes, please. All right. Well, this was at a convention in Atlanta. I think it was '91 or '92, and Jonathan was sitting at the next table over in the restaurant. And uh, there were, I think, three, four or five of us at this table. And Jonathan said he was going to come over and share some stories with us when he finished. And he did. Wow. Somebody somebody during the course of the evening said something about an, another one of the stars there who would not allow cameras or camcorders during her presentation. And Jonathan just flipped out, pounded his fist on the table, silverware went flying all over the place. And he said, <laughs> that blank, blank, blank. How dare she? Just in the Dr. Smith voice, you know. Uh. Dr. Smith. Yeah, Jonathan used four-letter words I never heard of, by the way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way it is. Yeah. And I figured, and this, at this point, I got a spoon in my lap, you know, and and uh, <laughs> one thing led to another, and he's the one telling stories for, until the wee hours of the morning. I'm sitting there lapping all this up. And what that led to was an exchange of uh, letters for the next decade. I'm the proud owner of 27 personal letters from Jonathan. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah wow. so... Uh, Yep, and uh, you know he always wrote back. He's just a class act all the way. And uh, you know the last time I saw him was at uh, a convention called Fright Vision. I think that was in 2001, and that was in uh, Cleveland, I think. Wow. And uh, we had made arrangements to meet for dinner, and Jonathan was kind of on the frail side at that point. But so I saw him being escorted over to the restaurant, and I kind of kept my distance because I didn't want to impose on him. You know, once we got in there, he said, "Ron, get over here." And so. He sat right next to me, and the whole thing was relived all over again, you know. So mm. and that's the last time I ever saw him before he passed away, of course. But, well, uh, that's, that's very special. One of the things I really admire about the cast members is they all seem to have embraced their roles in Lost in Space. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the other iconic actors that played characters that uh, we know from growing up, they kind of have run away from that because there's a, you know, some of them have been typecast over the years, but Jonathan Harris in particular strikes me as a guy that, that really enjoyed the fact that people recognized him as Dr. Smith. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. There's no question about it. No question about it. Jonathan was a interesting guy because he is one of these guys that was very, very giving yet. He wouldn't hesitate to tell you that, you know, his work was 
what made the show work. You know, it's all about me. <laughs> sort of mm-hmm. thing. It's not the kind of combination you'd expect for someone to be that gracious and giving yet have that kind of uh, attitude. The e- yeah, the ego. The, the ego, the ego yeah. right, exactly. But you know what? In his case, it's, it's totally forgivable just because of the kind of guy he was. So, you know, I wouldn't. Uh, and the one, one thing I learned early on, though, with Jonathan is you never want to discuss with him the subject of the transition in his character unless you want to get your head bitten off. Oh. <laughs> Really, yeah. he was adamantly uh, defending what he did with that character, and uh, you know, so it's another thing just popped into my head uh, when uh, when the film came out back in '98, which I thought was god awful, by the way, but that's another story. Uh, a lot of us were trying to get Jonathan to uh, do, to do that cameo role, and I wrote him a letter and I said, please consider doing it for the fans. And he wrote back, and you know, it's one of those situations where you can read something and just hear the guy's voice, you know. But he wrote back and he said to me, "My dear boy, I do not do." Cameos. <laughs> okay. Now I can't do Jonathan the way Kevin or Bill can do him, but you get the idea, you know. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, it seems to me, and I'm I'm saying this in a good way. There's a lot of Jonathan Harris and Doctor Smith, so it's it's no wonder he's very protective of that of that. Role. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But don't you know? Don't God don't don't ever bring up the rule transition thing. Is that that was a mistake? You know. Yeah. Yeah, he also scolded me one other time, I'll share with you, uh, this pops into my head, uh, when Polar Lights was doing the uh, kit for Dr. Smith and the Robot, you know, that was right on the heels of the Jupiter 2, and, and I was talking to them about uh, doing that artwork, and uh, and I told Jonathan about it, and turns out they wound up giving that job to another artist. So uh, he writes back to me in, a, in this letter, and he says, and talk about being scolded, don't you ever do anything like that again unless you have a signed contract. And underline the last two words with such a force that he almost broke broke through the, through the paper, you know. So, well, now one thing you shared with me is he was not only invested in his character the way it was portrayed, but he had some say over even the way his costuming was done. Wasn't there some incident you shared with me about his first season change of costume? I can't remember exactly what that was. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, is that one you, you can know, share or not? <laughs> Yeah, well, in a nice way. Of, let me think of a way to put it delicately. Uh, Jonathan, when the light-colored costumes came out, didn't think that uh, that that flattered his physical proportions the way he wanted it to. Okay, <laughs> so uh, uh, he wanted to go back to the dark top. So, so anyway, it's, that's the story there. He he got rid of that costume. They had a guest star who walked off with it. It was called All the Glitters in that episode. The, yeah. the uh, guest star, the character named Ohan, walked off with that lighter colored costume and we never saw it again. Yeah. For years, I wondered what color that actually was, but I guess it's it's been revealed that it was actually a yellow, I think, shirt, wasn't it? Something yeah, it was like kind that. of a tan yellow color. That's tan exactly yellow right. color. Huh. Yeah. Well, I, I always think the villain should be in dark colors anyway, so he was probably right on multiple counts. So yeah. Well, another question, since we're talking about color anyway, I want to transition to this. And, and I know I'm keeping you here and, and being very greedy with your time, so I'll, I'll try to get us to a good closing point. And hopefully, you know, there's more that we can talk about. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll be able to twist your arm to come on the show again down the road, Bron. That oh, would be sure, awesome. Yeah. Anytime. So. So this is a, a question. It's also kind of prickly. This is like uh, something that's deeply divided the Lost in Space fan community, and that's the whole topic of colorizing the first season black and white episodes. Yeah. And, and let me just say, I got to interview Mike Clark not long ago, and I think you know him. He's he's another well-known 
guy in the community. No one likes this, the 80s, and then class act all the way, absolutely. He's a, he's a very nice gentleman, and I enjoyed talking to him. And I actually he actually wrote an article about this on his website and talking about colorization, not just about Lost in Space, but that was one of the examples. And I'd be interested in hearing what your opinion is on this whole topic. Okay. Here it is. I'm going to upset a few people when I say this. I am adamantly in favor of doing it. And, uh, you know, you can be a purist all you want, but let's go back to my story about WGN and not wanting to air those black and white episodes. This has been a problem all along. I mean, I had a conversation with Kevin a few months ago. We were talking about Follow the Leader versus uh, uh, Anti-Matter Man because they're, they're similar episodes. One's in color, one's in black and white. And to me, the obvious choice is follow the leader. Great way to end the first season. But I said to Kevin, but nobody's ever going to see that one because it's in black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's an aversion to that. I mean, I, I have an 11 year old niece who will not watch black and white. Right. You know, I had her over one time and I wanted to play Mr. Nobody for her. And I wound up doing uh, Golden Man instead. The one with the deflated beach balls, you know. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so uh, she won't watch black and white. So, so th- there we are. I mean, here's the deal. You, you've got to be able to expand the market. Uh, if you want this cool stuff out there, because I got, you know, I got to say, uh, just the hardcore fans are not sufficient to support a lot of this stuff. I mean, just take a look at the Blu-ray sales there, and Kevin put a lot of his own money into that. Uh, I don't know if he ever got that totally taken care of, covered. That is, but my guess is not, that he hasn't. In my posters, I mean, uh, I can get 200 likes on a Facebook page and sell a handful of them. Now, by the time I supply my uh, wholesale partners, I'm in fair shape, so I'm doing okay, but uh, you get the idea. The, the hardcore fan base is not really not sufficient. You need to find ways to expand the customer base, and the best way I can think of is to do this colorization, because it's going to open up a whole new world. And for those purists who just can't accept it, I would say, you know, you've already got what you want. Look at the Blu-ray. Look at, look at the work Kevin did on that. I mean, what, what more do you want? You know, uh, let's give uh, another generation, a whole new uh, set of fans, uh, the opportunity to see this thing in a different light. And maybe they'll change their attitude about the series in the process. At least I, w- I would hope so. So that's my, uh, my general opinion. So I'll get off my soapbox now. No, I, I, think, I think that's <laughs> a totally valid position. And I'm, I hadn't really put a lot of thought into it prior to doing the podcast and talking to people about it. I would hate it if we didn't have access to the originals because I do love them as they are. And I think some of the episodes would be totally different if you had them in color versus black and white. Because I just think there were creative you know, cinematography choices that they made with black and white. But what I've learned is... The technology, and a lot of us are prejudiced on, not just from a purist standpoint, but the early attempts at colorization weren't all that well executed. I mean, they were they were interesting and okay, but, you know, they didn't really sell you that that was a color film. It looked like, you know, an old tinted black and white photograph from the 1940s or something like that. It sort of reminded me of that anyway. But as long as we've got the original stuff and no one's taking that away from us. No, exactly. If it if there's an opportunity to expand the original Lost in Space viewership and, and grow the fan community and, and get more people buying Blu-rays and DVDs and talking about it. I mean, I think fandom is great and I love it. I love all these people. It's such a great fan community. That's something I didn't, I don't think I mentioned before, but all the people that are Lost in Space fans are so nice but let's face it we're not getting any younger and if nobody comes up behind us watching lost in space well this will be another thing that kind of gets archived away and that'll be a shame exactly right you know and the thing is too it it could be done sequentially let's consider this possibility for a minute why not take the first five which were based on the pilot which frankly was meant to be shot in color anyway 
Right. And the budget ran out, and that was the end of that, right? So take those first five as a package and put those out as a, as a test market and see what happens. That's my idea anyway. Uh, so anyway, I don't know if any of this is ever going to materialize. The last time I talked to Kevin, it did not sound promising, and yet I, I still see these posts pop up every now and then, which means it tells me there's still feelers out that are considering this possibility. At least I hope that's what it means. Because Well, my understanding is he's open to it. He's not He's not against it, I, but there is the issue of cost. And Well, yeah, you know, I mean, who's, so, who's going to pay for it? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, uh, again, you got to understand, Lost in Space is not Star Trek. I mean, as much as it pains me to have to say that, it's true. I mean, we don't have the fan base they do. The whole point here is to try to grow that fan base, you know, and uh, to draw the attention back to the original, especially those great first season episodes that nobody re- remembers all that much about. And and also say this, you know, looking at colorization, I've seen some samples. I, uh, Mike Clark posted uh, the Superman thing with Lucy, for example, etc. I'm not sure they can, you, you can't make it look exactly like it was filmed in color. Take a look at the episode Ghost Planet, for example, where they've got all these uh, blue reflections on the faces and all these intricate things going on with color that, you know, you're probably going to get areas filled in with one color you know uh i don't even know if the, if the if what i described about the reflections is possible with colorization it might be i don't know but it would be a, a, that much more of an effort to do that uh so we're not going to get everything it's not going to be exactly like it was like it would have been if it were filmed in color there sure. are going to be some compromises there's no question about that sure. but still it, it would present these things on a whole different level that and give them a whole new look that hopefully would attract a, a larger audience and that's really what it's all about you know and and again based on my own experiences with my uh, with my sales i can tell you we need we need that boost uh you know i treat this as a full-time job and it pays a few bills basically i mean that's the way it is and i don't mind doing it because i have such passion for the show but uh, but you know if you want cool stuff out there, you got to be able to support it. And the way to support it is to expand the uh, customer base. Absolutely. If we're it, then that's not going to be very cool for the, the long-term future of Lost in Space. And I, that's I'd exactly really, right. I'd and like really. I said, you know, if you want if you want to be a purist, and I understand that episodes like Wish Upon a Star are going to be hard to colorize because it has that uh, that look uh, of, a, of an old uh, gothic film. You know, uh, that's going to be a tough, a tough ask. I get all that, but, you know... Let's get over it because you've got the Blu-ray. If you want the original version, you couldn't have a better a better copy. Thanks to Kevin's efforts, and uh, let's see if we can expand this thing into something that uh, we never dreamed possible. Beautiful. Well, couldn't agree more with you. Well, I think that's a great place for us to sort of wrap things up. I've really taken a lot of your time, Ron, today, but it's been fun for me. I could go on and on. So like I said, we're going to keep our fingers crossed that we'll be able to get you back on and and talk some more stuff. But before we do go, you're such a prolific guy. Give us a little sneak peek what you're working on. What can we expect uh, in the near future from Ron Gross? Well, I'll tell you this. Since I got back from Wonderfest, I've been working my butt off. <laughs> I've got, uh, I've already got like nine pieces for the next calendar. I, I won't give too many of those away because I don't want to get too far ahead of myself there because some of those I haven't shared with Kevin yet. So I, I want to be very respectful in, in, in that area. But uh, I'll tell you that we're going to see Marta in one of them. And, uh, Marta Christen. Yep. And uh, the next one I'm going to release, which might already be out by the time this is aired, uh, will be dedicated to uh, Dan Schroeder and uh, John Antonellis. That should tell you something. Ah, I think I know where you're going with this, but uh, yeah. yeah we'll, Dan's we'll, a good one. Dan is one yes. of my best customers. He's bought everything I've ever, <laughs> ever done. <laughs> and uh, he's John's right-hand man a lot, in a lot of uh, respects. So I think they'll get a kick out of that one. Um, what else can I tell you without giving away the farm here? I will depart from the first season briefly and do something uh, from another season. Yep. Interesting. Um, okay. 
I'll give you the title, but I haven't showed this to Kevin yet either, so I'm going to be real careful here. I'll just give you the title. It's called uh, New Adventures in Forgotten Galaxies. Huh. Intriguing. Oh, yeah. well, I think I might know where you go, but I, maybe not. So I'll, I'll that, leave us wanting more. You're a great showman there, Ron. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah, it, well, can I, can I make a statement, too, uh, as we close here? Let me just say this. Um, you know, as far as all this artwork and all the stuff I've done is concerned, uh, I thought about this from time to time, but... You know, if I could go back in time and uh, show this stuff to that 11-year-old kid who loved that show so much, my former self, uh, and tell him, you know, 30 years from now, you're going to be responsible for this model kit. You know, 20 years after that, you're going to be doing all this stuff and showing these pieces. I think he might just have a heart attack. Oh. Don't think I don't understand what a blessing this has been and how much I appreciate it. And uh, t- But t- to tell him that you would become this guy, that guy who's doing all this stuff, would be something quite profound, I think. So I think that's, that's a, good, good, a good place to shut up right there. <laughs> Ron, that is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. And I, I, I can tell it means a lot to you. And it means a lot to us, what you've been doing. So please keep going. And we can't wait till the next things become become public. So Ron Gross. Thanks for being so generous with your time and for joining us on Alpha Control. And we're going to link to your website, and it's fascinating, folks, so please check that out. But is there any place else you'd like to mention where people can catch up with what you're doing? My Facebook page has become uh, you know, quite expansive, I guess. I post a lot there. I, I love posting uh, some of my old stuff. I've been doing a lot of that, some of my old college paintings, for example, which shows where, where I'm coming from in terms of the roots, mm-hmm. uh, alien landscapes and cavern interiors. And I'll be posting one soon that will be outer limits oriented. Uh, and I uh, did post one a few days ago involving the uh, old Superman TV show. That one, by the way, is a, is a straightforward oil painting. Well, they all are from that era. Uh, but the George Reeves thing is a little bit later. That was done in 2006. Yeah, I think I saw that, what you're talking about. That was really cool. And of course, yeah. my, my uh, buddy Kurt is a huge outer limits uh, fan, so he enjoys any Thing to do with that. So. Well, that's going to be interesting because I, I took a photograph off the TV screen with a Square Shooter 2 Polaroid camera and expanded it into this 3 by 4 foot monstrosity, okay? Mm. And it's on my website already. You can see it, but I'll be talking more about it when I post it. That's, that's going to be within the next few weeks. So. Beautiful. So we talk about the old stuff now and then with the kid drawings and the the older paintings as I did when I was a young adult, and then we tie it all together with what we're doing now, and hopefully people like it, so... Well, you're a real renaissance man, and it's been great talking to you. So I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show and getting to hear your stories. I know it's going to be a real treat for our listeners. So for now, I'll just say thanks again, Ron, for being on the show, and we will talk to you later. Thanks, Lane. Thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. You bet. Bye. That was a blast talking with Lost in Space artist Ron Gross. You can tell he's truly passionate about all things Irwin Allen. So let's keep our fingers crossed. He'll make time down the road to come back and talk with us more. In the meantime, we will be back next week with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. 
or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.